Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. But since we're global, you'll have to check what time it is for you. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And you can also hear us on the phone. Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> listen live at 424-203-8046. So, you know, like, why would you want to listen on your phone? Well, you don't have to. If you have a cell phone, you can uh, get us on uh, <clears throat> your browser. But if it makes sense, listen on your phone. What I do is I just plug it into the auxiliary. I have an older car, so it doesn't have Bluetooth. I plug it into the auxiliary on uh, my car radio and just listen to PRN shows in my car. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I was just lecturing at an interesting organization called Art is Naples. It's in Naples, Florida. And it's a cultural organization. It has a beautiful theater where they do uh, classical music, opera concerts, uh, Broadway shows, and then a museum, which is closed at the moment for renovation, and then adult learning. That's me. <laughs> so I lecture on art and architecture. And when I go down there, I rent a car. My car is uh, 10 years old now, and I tend to take care of my cars. So, you know, I keep them 10 or 20 years. And boy, do they get out of date these days. Because I get in a car today, I have no idea how the lights work. Apparently, you put them on automatic, and they go on and off. So I just don't touch the headlights. And then at the moment I get into the car, it starts playing something from my phone, you know, some books on tape or something, <clears throat> some audio book. From my, how does it do that? Well, well, you know, what's it doing? How do you turn that off? So anyway, um, so you can plug or Bluetooth your phone into your car, listen to the great shows on PRN, and it's now been a little while, but we finally got out our app. So you can download uh, our app for uh, Android and iPhone. Listen that way, get back shows that way. And today I want to go back to, um, this is the fifth show I'm doing on reading lists. So I'm always looking for, you know, what's a good book to read? There's so few good books out there. Um, and I start with, like, what's a book? And, well, you know, it's something that's got covers and paper. But more significantly, a book, uh, an individual person is interested in something. And they devote sometimes years to thinking about it, researching it, and then putting writing on paper that will communicate what they have found to other individual persons. 
So that's one way to look at a book. And it's that makes it, you know, lots of cultures have books. But think of a book the way we think of it. Printing press was a big part of what brought that about. And I I noticed years ago, actually when I was in high school, I read a book by Arthur Kessler called The Lotus and the Robot. Kessler's a really interesting person. He was a, a European intellectual, I think Austrian, and <clears throat> he was a um, uh, communist, I think, and left the Communist Party. So he's one of those people who got turned off. That's <laughs> not the right word, but <clears throat> by the Soviet show trials in the 1930s as the Russian Revolution began to devour itself. And <clears throat> I think he's one of the contributors to the book, The God That Failed, Andrei Gide is, uh, about the failure of communism. And then we discover <clears throat> from Solzhenitsyn the gulags. So we should have known all along. But And Kessel wrote a book called Darkness at Noon about the Stalin show trials. But then he started writing about culture and technology. And he did a book, I'm not remembering the name right now, about how did um, our Newtonian physics come about? You know, what we learn is you go from uh, Copernicus to Kepler, to, oh, Copernicus to Taco Brahe to Kepler to Newton to sort of figure out the, our current understanding of the solar system. But there's really a lot more culture in there. And we get a sense of that, for example, from Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. But this whole insight uh, really came earlier in Europe. And we see it in Ernst Cassira and in Kessler. But he did a book called The Lotus and the Robot, talking about India and Japan and their cultural structure, inner structure of their cultures and similarities and differences between them and the West. And he had a chapter in there on Japanese psychotherapy, which, you know, a totally different notion of what a mentally disturbed person is. So we've gotten rid of a lot of mental hospitals in the West, but uh, as we've done away with involuntary incarceration, but although there's still some of it, there's a, uh, a new movie coming out. I can't remember the name of it. It's famous for being shot on iPhones. But anyway, uh, so we think of a, Mentally ill persons potentially violent, so you put them in a place, you know, with padded walls and bars so they can't get out and hurt people. And in Japan, traditional Japanese architecture is made with sliding rice paper walls. <laughs> Obviously, anybody could break through that. And the therapist would typically be a woman who would sit with the mentally ill person 24 7 for a long period of time. So a totally different model of psychotherapy than our 
uh, in the 1950s, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, and more recently, uh, drugs. And so some years later, after reading this, there's an article about it in the New York Times, which I read. And then this happened a few more times, and I said, gee, it's interesting. You'd think that since newspapers are published every day and they have a huge amount of space, I mean, one newspaper is huge, and imagine you're doing them five, six, or seven days a week. There's a lot of room in there. And so you wouldn't skip something because, you know, we don't have the space. You just put it in the next edition. And... But despite that, I was noticing that new ideas were appearing first in books, then in magazines, and finally in newspapers, when you would think it would be the other way around, you know, because newspapers are published every day, and you don't typically take a year or two or three to write a newspaper article. Something interesting comes along, get in tomorrow's newspaper. And a couple of years later, someone will put it in a book. But that is what I was noticing. So I started getting interested in thinking about, you know, what are books and what role do they play? I have a whole section on that in my book, Visionary Creativity. So you can, uh, you can uh, get, a, uh, get a Kindle or paperback copy of it online. So in thinking about that, uh, so, okay, you know, where are the books I want to read? And not to pick on anybody, but we all have different tastes. And I start to notice that the New York Times book review section seems to, you know, be very interested in novels about family relationships or whatever. Well, very important. Families are important. Understanding them, not my thing. Uh, I'm more interested in, uh, you know, cosmology, like uh, <clears throat> um, uh, what's his name? Programming the Universe by, I'll think of it in a minute, uh, who calls himself a quantum mechanic. You know, how to generate new universes, that kind of thing. Guy stuff. So anyway... I watch C-SPAN, and occasionally there are interesting uh, books on there. Although it has to be at least peripherally related to politics to be on C-SPAN. You know, if it's, you know, occasionally they'll have cosmology or physics or whatever, but it's not their, uh, what's the right word? It's not their mandate. And I've mentioned before I fantasize about there should be a cultural C-SPAN. As I like to say, if you think of, pick a, okay, let's just pick Harvard. And Harvard has hundreds of departments, you know, uh, sociology, psychology, architecture, uh, city planning, political science, uh, physics. And in physics, is probably... 20 different physics departments. And interesting, there was an article a while back about Harvard making a major commitment to uh, build up engineering. And I say, how would we let MIT get ahead of us? And 
So there are all these departments, and many of them have lecture series. Uh, mine does. I teach architecture at a New York school. And every Thursday evening, there's a, a lecture by a very important, prominent architect or something related to architecture. And all that's lost. Why isn't, you know, you could have a cultural C-SPAN and you could go to a dozen different universities, but it could be just one university and record this stuff and play it. Well, now, of course, now we have it. It's called YouTube. So that's great. I picked the people I'm interested in. I'll talk a minute about Jordan B. Peterson, but there's something fascinating going on there. And you just go to, you put his name in in um, YouTube, and then go to Filter. Over on the right, there's some lines indicate menus. Click on that, and you'll get an option to filter. Then you can say, only show me those from the past week or the past month. And that way, you won't be digging through a dozen that you've already seen. You can say, well, is there anything new? And so, that, you know, among the people I'm interested in are Ray Kurzweil and Stephen Wolfram. So I'll check and go click on the filter and see what's new. So, but it's one way to find out what's going on out there, and then you can get into more depth in a book. Well, I've been interested recently in, uh, as I like to put it to my students, what happened? And if you look at world history, and we do the way we teach architectural history where I am, it's four semesters, and we spend a lot of time on the cultures as well as the buildings, and we can start from the beginning, and we look at other, you know, we look beyond the West. You have a lot on China and India, Latin America, on and on, Africa, on and on. And <clears throat> one of the things, if you look at these cultures, of course, we pick the highlights, like the high periods of ancient Egypt or the Roman Empire. And there are these huge accomplishments, which you can have an indication of how much wealth they had and power over nature by them having built pyramids or the uh, Pantheon or whatever. But really, by our standards today, these cultures were very poor. And the throughout human history, people had barely enough calories to survive, uh, extremely short lifespans, you know, 30 years. So that's very tricky because what you, um, if you want to factor out infant mortality, and so you say, if you make it to five years old, how long will you live? Or if you make it to 20 years old, how long will you live? Because there's a difference between the average, you know, infant mortality pulling it way down. The signers of the Declaration of Independence, the American Declaration of Independence, seven, what is it, 1776? Um, and they lived on average into their 80s. So here was a time when average life expectancy was maybe 45. But they had already made it to uh, 30, 40, 50 at, the time, at that time, that they were in that, those responsible positions. And so 
uh, you know, if you made it that far, you were tough enough <laughs> in a world before antibiotics and modern surgery and modern dentistry and stuff like that. Um, maybe you would live a while. But in general, think 30 or 40 is how long people lived. And you look at these figures that we admire, you know, like Mozart, but many of them, and find out, you know, they died, Mozart in his 30s, but, you know, maybe 40 or 50. You, you had to get, if you were going to have, do significant work with your life, you had to get it done because you weren't going to live as long as me. <laughs> I'm 76. But um, so starting in, so so if you make a graph of gross national product, food, food per capita, uh, whatever you, however you want to measure human well-being, it's it flatlines for thousands of years and maybe ticks up, you know, 1% a year or something like that. Uh, we get the, uh, the Romans were pretty accomplished, did a lot of stuff. I mean, they did get breakfast to every a million people in the city of Rome every morning. So, you know, they were pretty well organized. But it's ticking up at, you know, your 1% a year. And then uh, 250 years ago, very roughly, 1750, uh, it you get one of those uh, exponential curves. You get a knee bend. It looks like it's tilting up a bit. And then all of a sudden, kapow, straight up. Um, so looking at human history of, you know, people living on less than whatever that means, less than a dollar a day, uh, subsistence diet and all that, suddenly <laughs> biggest health problem in the world today is obesity, right? Uh, that's a big change from famines and starvation. And today, when you have a famine, it's usually politically caused. It's not because of lack of food, but because there's some civil war going on and one side is uh, starving out the other side by cutting off food. So that still goes on. But the idea that there's just not enough food is over. Now, <clears throat> populations continues to rise, even though it's um, settling off a bit in developed countries, but it's still, you know, careening upwards and we might outstrip our food supply. But so far, hasn't happened. And we're just at the beginning of uh, things like uh, uh, vertical agriculture. You know, what happens when you build a skyscraper who's all with no walls and you got farms in there? <laughs> Is that going to be doable? Uh, we'll see. There's a a food place. What is it? Is it uh, um, you uh, PRN listeners will know better than me. But I, I think there's a, a kind of gourmet food place called the Vinegar Factory. And I think they've got uh, farms on their roof in New York. You know, they grow a lot of herbs and stuff like that right here in the city. So you want to be careful about that because there's a lot of lead in the soil and all that. But apparently they're careful. Anyway, so what happened 250 years ago? And... So I've been sort of got caught up in that 
And some of the books I've been listening to are precisely about that. Well, what happened was, <clears throat> however you want to date it, but if you want to start with Leonardo da Vinci's time, Leonardo knew he was a little bit weak in math, but very strong on the other sciences. He worked on understanding gravity, on understanding the optics of the eye, uh, on light, on uh, all kinds of forces in nature, on and on and on. And then, you know, a little bit later, we get Copernicus, and then we get Galileo. We get Vesalius's uh, anatomy book, uh, if you're into art and anatomy. Uh, boy, I remember being blown away by that when I was a kid. But you can still, you know, people have been reprinting it. And it starts with a standing nude male figure. And then each plate shows more and more of the muscles peeled away until it's down to the skeleton. So if you go back, and that's the mid-1500s, if you go back uh, 50, eh, 50, 70 years earlier, the artists like Leonardo and Michelangelo had a pretty good understanding of anatomy, and there's quite a bit of uh, publication—well, Leonardo never published anything. He's always working on some monster book uh, about a treatise on something, but he never finishes them. But he's a pretty good student of anatomy, and but Vesalius published the book. And so you get that kind of thing happening. And you, and so we have what we call the scientific revolution, you know, culminating in a way, although it's, we're still in it to this day, with Isaac Newton in gravity, motion, and optics. And then uh, we just keep going. But we, he really, um, Newton really marks a uh, milestone, to coin a term. And then what we get by the late 1700s, what we call the Enlightenment. And I like to very, you know, there are all these Enlightenment figures, have Rousseau and Hobbes, and like I can tell one from another. Uh, my my younger colleagues lecture on that stuff at, uh, at my school. But what we see is, uh, what I like to do is, Simplify and clarify for my students. So what was the Enlightenment? And I think, put very simply, the Enlightenment was the application of the principles of the scientific revolution taken from nature and applied to human beings and human society. So what we had done in scientific revolution is first observe, you know, so you you take a... a ball bearing and roll it down an inclined plane and you time its motion and you discover that its motion accelerates, goes faster and faster. Uh, Aristotle got that wrong, but uh, by the time of um, by the time of Galileo and Newton they had figured it out. Some of these things would have been understandable to Aristotle if he had thought it through. For example, I like to say to my students, okay, I'm going to drop this pen. Does it fall at a constant rate or does it accelerate? And, yeah, three-quarters get it right. But I say, how would you prove it to somebody who thought it 
fell at a constant rate. Of course, you have the problem of how you go from zero to whatever the rate is from the moment it leaves your fingers. But as it's very simple, let's take a um, a uh, an inch in diameter ball bearing. I'm going to drop it on your head. And I can either drop it from one inch or three feet. Which would you prefer? <laughs> and... You know, it's going to hurt a lot more if it comes from three feet. Well, that's not because it's heavier. It's because it's moving faster. So there you go. You know, it's called a thought experiment. It's a real famous one when Galileo says, um, you know, again, if you have uh, two, two steel balls, one weighs one pound and the other weighs two pounds. And we're going to drop them. And which one will fall faster? And then we already get into a very interesting abstract idea, which is uh, if we leave out the effects of the friction of the air, sumo is in a vacuum. Well, that's already a sophisticated idea. We can handle the idea of vacuums because we've been we've seen a lot of science fiction movies, although <laughs> both Star Trek and Star Wars is interesting how they don't need space helmets. <laughs> As they hop around through, you know, from one spaceship to another. But anyway, uh, it's supposed to be a problem when you have a a whole breach. Uh, but anyway, uh, so assume we have a vacuum. And <clears throat> Galileo said he did, and we think maybe he didn't, go up on the Leaning Tower of Pisa and drop two weights and... His assistant down below said, oh, they both hit the ground at about the same time. So it's going to be affected by air resistance. But there's a thought experiment you can do for that, which is take a a one-pound ball bearing and drop it. Okay, now take two one-pound ball bearings, an inch apart, and drop them. And, well, they're going to both fall the same, right? Now... Put them right next to each other so they're just touching and drop them. They suddenly they're going to fall twice as fast? No. They both fall the same as a single one-pound one ball bearing. Now put a little drop of glue between the two of them. Is that suddenly going to make the speed double because you put a drop of glue there? Oh. So that's a thought experiment. Einstein's famous for thought experiments. Anyway... The What happened 250 years ago was the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was the application of the success of science to human affairs. So science first observed nature, then theorized about the observations, and then applied those to harnessing and controlling nature. So, you know, first we observed that If you boil water, you get steam, and steam expands. And then we theorize about it, and then we make a steam engine. And I guess I gather, I think from my reading, they were first used, steam engines were first used in uh, uh, pumps in mines, to pump water out of mines. So you didn't need a donkey going around in a circle. But eventually put steam engines on railroads. Etc. So uh, now, what if we do that for human beings? If we say, 
let's understand what how a person grows up, becomes educated, and flourishes. Psychology. Let's understand how we might make a, uh, a better social interaction. Sociology. Let's understand how we might make a political order. Political science. So I'm critical of social sciences. We'll talk more about that in another show. But we see those kinds of successes happening and coming about uh, beginning in the 1750s. And all this then gets put together. Uh, Better forms of agriculture, transportation to move food, means of storage of food, uh, development of markets, which harness human motivation to make all these things work. And those things develop explosively starting in the uh, 250 years ago. It's called the Enlightenment, and we're still there, and, you know, we're still in it. Well, <clears throat> I notice that I get into arguments with my colleagues where I teach, particularly those in the social sciences, who don't believe any of this. They think things have been getting worse. I said, what? What do you mean things have been getting worse? I mean, you know, any one of our students today lives better than a king did 300 years ago, starting with adequate food. You know, they've got a used car with 100 horsepower. It used to be three or 400, but now back down to 100. I mean, I, I mean look at the... Excuse me. Look at the wealth. A an ordinary, not affluent person has. Well, you can be <clears throat> now the homeless in New York. Mostly mental problems. Beautiful article in the New York Times uh, several weeks ago, following a uh, homeless woman. The journalist had befriended her. And uh, and then, you know, one day she wasn't there. <clears throat> she interviewed everybody and um, put together a picture of this woman's life. The homeless woman had been a very promising college student and had a, you know, initially had a career. But, so yeah, that exists. We haven't figured out how, how to fix mental illness yet. But, uh in general, a poor person today <clears throat> in a housing project in New York, my God, hot and cold running water, uh, a smartphone that's more powerful than a Cray-1 supercomputer has access to maybe, what, 20 million books uh, on their on their device, has access to, <clears throat> I remember we got an Encyclopedia Britannica, Somehow, the $100 a month never stopped. It was after we paid it off. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were sending updated yearbooks every year. But anyway, the, you know, you just go through what, what's available to us, doubling the lifespan in the past uh, couple hundred years, on and on and on. And this, and then the claim is, well, you know, in the 1970s, it stopped. And things have been getting worse since the 1970s. Well, duh, what about the Internet? Oh, yeah, well, we admit that. The Internet and the cell phone and computers. But other things? Well, 
the size of the average home has doubled. The percent of people going since the 70s in the United States, uh, percent of people going to college has doubled. Percent of people going to graduate school has doubled. A Honda Accord today is a better car than a 1970s Mercedes-Benz. So some things are continuing to get better. TV is better. <laughs> My God, does anybody watching Counterpart? Whoa. Uh, so someday we should do a call-in show about what uh, what series you're currently watching because there's so much great stuff. But anyway, <clears throat> we see this explosion and things getting better. And, you know, for a while it was claimed, yeah, but it stopped in the 70s because we did the easy stuff, you know, like flush toilets and uh, electricity and television. So, you know, what have we done since? Well, yeah, you know, there, there are differences, but, uh, you know, things have been... Anything you want to measure has gotten quite a bit better since the 70s. So I have these arguments with my colleagues who are trying to say, telling the students everything's getting worse. I say, well, it's just not true. So first book I want to talk about today. That took a while. Um, Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. So... Uh, the book is filled with charts. And since I listened to the audio version, I didn't have the charts. But they're pretty important to his point. So when I'm listening to a book, I usually think, you know, if there's crucial graphic stuff, they'll have a downloadable PDF. And I usually don't. But last couple books I did, this one and the other one... Um, Leonardo da Vinci by, who wrote da Vinci? By uh, Walter Isaacson. And I, you know, I'm sort of familiar with da Vinci's work. So if he says the Mona Lisa, I know what he's talking about. But there's a lot of specific references to specific paintings or drawings that he talks about in the book. So I found the PDF useful for that as well. But so I'm going to try to describe this. Sometime we'll do this again with um, um, broadcasting video onto our YouTube channel. You can hear us on YouTube. But no, Facebook. I'm sorry, Facebook. But so I'm looking at a chart. Um, gross world product. Now... You know, of course, gross world product is a crude measure. But you get this line that's, you know, barely lifts above zero until, uh, say, 1700. And then until maybe 1850, you get a little bit of curve up. And then, kazoom! In the past 100 years, it goes straight up uh, and increases a thousandfold. And then um, GDP per capita. So, of course, there's more economic activity because there's more people. But there's also more per person. So we see it hovering around, whoa, um, what do we have here? 
um, you know, less than a thousand dollars a person, probably a hundred dollars a person from sixteen hundred, and then kazoom up to fifty thousand in the U.S., forty thousand in the U.K., um, thirty-five thousand in South Korea, twenty thousand in Chile, ten thousand worldwide, ten thousand in China. From you know, like a hundred dollars a year to a thousand dollars a year in India. So there's this explosion in wealth and being put to pretty good use. Uh, looking at charts of um, life expectancy going from now again, this is tricky because are we talking about? life expectancy at birth or people who made it to five years old or people who made it to 20 years old. But anyway, we're going for um, uh, the Americas and Europe from 35 to 75 and from Africa, Asia, and world from 30 to eh, past 60 so in the past 100 years, it just doubled the life expectancy. So are things better or worse? And, you know, is it, is it better to be alive than dead? And then we get things like child mortality. So we take Sweden because they, you know, we think of them of having their act together. From 1751 to 2013. So uh, very roughly 30— Per, let's see, percentage dying before the age of five. So 30% of children died before the age of five in um, Sweden in 1750s, 150 plus years ago. And it's down to less than 1%. And then Canada, South Korea, Chile, Ethiopia. So, you know, South Korea was up there uh, in 1960. 35% of children died, and now it's down to less than 1%. And then women dying during birth, uh, maternal mortality. Again, Sweden going from percent, 1% down to less than a tenth of a percent. So dozens and dozens of these charts looking at everything, uh, diseases, health, and just things like automobile accidents have dropped 90% per capita in the past 100 years. Um, things like falling off a ladder dropped 90%. If you think about uh, workplace deaths, so you know, you're in the workplace and uh, you're dealing with heavy machinery and you get caught in the machinery and you get killed. Well, maybe it's not as perfect as it should be, but it's a lot better than it was. You know, they're really into making things safe. Think of our cars with our seat belts and airbags and anti-lock brakes. And, and now we're getting cars that detect that we're coming up on somebody too fast and automatically apply the brakes and side airbags. Oh, just by the way, 
Uh, this is John LaBelle. We're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM. I'm looking at the clock, and time is flying. So thought I'd <coughs> sort of make an announcement there. So um, let me take a break and clear my throat here, and we'll be back in a minute. Hi, this is John Lobel. You can hear my show Visionaries at 10 a.m. on Mondays on PRN. And guess what? PRN now has its own app. So you've always been able to listen to our shows by going to your web browser and putting in PRN.FM. And then you can listen to the current show that's on air. But you can now download onto your smartphone Android and iPhone, our PRN browser, search for it in your app store, and you can listen live to whatever's on at the moment. So download now our PRN.FM app. The Progressive Radio Network is a thinking person's network for our world's progressive visionaries and stakeholders, and great thinkers to assemble on a commercial-free and listener-supported network. Our provocative hosts speak freely and passionately on intriguing and urgent topics such as health and news and politics and women's issues and philosophy and more that directly impact our lives. Progressive Radio Network takes chances. Our voices and ideas are not always welcomed by corporate media. So Progressive Radio Network is... A very important outlet for these great thinkers. This is PRN, Progressive Radio Network, your voice for independent views. Progressive Radio Network, information for the independent mind. Visionaries, find us here on prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network, every Monday at 10 New York time or whatever time it is your part of the world. And uh, I hope, uh, you know, some of this is helpful. Like I'm always, you know, what book should I read? And um, I like to think of a book as a good book. If somebody put a lot of thought into something and has a point of view and communicates that. So I'm an appreciator of books. I have a uh, limited attention span, so I can hardly read them anymore, but I get them on audio. And as I'm walking around the city, I'm uh, keeping up. So I was just describing Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. And let's see the subtitle here. The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And the book is a bit difficult because 
he describes how horrible life was uh, before, you know, 250 years ago. And, you know, just people dying left and right, starving. Uh, it was rough. I mean, you know, my, my, my grandparents lived with us, my mother's parents. And, they were, you know, so that I thought of that. That was a family. Well, my grandmother said, uh, yeah, my mother had six kids to lived. I, that's the way it was in those days. And where's that at? You know, we don't, we, that's not, uh, you know, if you have a friend, if you're getting pregnant or you have a friend who's pregnant, uh, hopefully everything goes well. But you don't think, yeah, you know, I got a 50-50 chance. The kid's going to live, not live. No, <laughs> they're going to live uh, unless something goes horribly wrong because we fixed that. And so wh- where do we come off saying that things are getting worse? They're not. I mean, just you, you just look at these graphs that he's got throughout the book, Pinker has throughout Enlightenment now, and they're just like most things are 90% better. Uh, some only doubled, you know. We've got our life expectancy has doubled, um, but our wealth, wealth of information, you know, the, the cliche we like to say, a a kid in Africa today with a smartphone has access to more information than did the president of the United States 25 years ago. And two-thirds of all Africans have cell phones. So, you know, it's happening. Well, it's only for the rich. No, it's not only for the rich. And Africa is the fastest developing part of the world and developing in terms of extending lifespan, extending nutrition, extending uh, education, extending access to the world's art and knowledge. I mean, just think about when I was a kid, my parents were, you know, however you want to put it, educated, sophisticated into the arts. And they were literate. We had a pretty extensive library in the house. And I discovered a lot of things. You know, <laughs> scared myself to death reading Dostoevsky's uh, Crime and Punishment. <laughs> he murders the, is it the landlady or the pawnbroker with uh, with an axe? And he describes it very graphically. But they they had art books. Well, art books had grainy illustrations in black and white. That was what you got. And maybe, you know, two or three of the art books had color, some color in them, and they were very poor quality color. I mean, National Geographic magazine prides itself on the best photography and printing possible. And when you go to a tag sale, there's always somebody selling back National Geographics, you know. (laughs) And go pick up one from the 50s or in the 60s and see how crummy those, the best possible illustrations were compared to what we have today. But then beyond that, you know, there's our smartphone with a retina screen and you can get just about any work of art, any important work of art from the entire human history just right on your screen in super resolution and, you know, sort of big. And if you... Want it bigger than use an iPad, and it's the size of a book. Um, and all that being 
instantly available for free. That wasn't true 20 years ago. <laughs> so anyway, I'm I'm um, it was it is a bit of a slog to get through Pinker, but he's very thorough in making the argument going through case after case, whether it's accidental deaths or infant diseases or, you know, that they've all gotten hugely better. It's just kind of dreary thinking about how bad it was. I mean, think of how bad it was. My grandmother, uh, who lived with us, uh, you know, in a comfortable suburb with uh, her own automobile, uh, but when she was young, she would walk to work across from Brooklyn, across the Brooklyn Bridge, and then take the trolley home uh, because if she had spent two fares, it would have eaten two you know, trolley fares, it would have eaten up most of the money she was making. I mean, where is that at? Do you have to walk from Brooklyn to Manhattan because you can't afford the subway? Uh, <laughs> which is now, what, $2.75? It was... It was uh, it was, what was it when I was a kid? 15 cents? And earlier than that was a nickel. It was a nickel when she couldn't afford it. So anyway, <clears throat> so I got interested in this what happened. And a couple of the books I haven't, one I just started, but I got three books by uh, Niall Ferguson. And I don't know, is he controversial? Is he one of those people we're not supposed to listen to? I got he he's a news he comment he's a news commentator, but he writes books on culture, and he was some years back selected by Time Time Magazine as one of the one hundred most most influential persons. So the books are uh, Civilization, the West, and the Rest. So what did happen in the West that was different from you know you, you go back to fourteen thirty. Admiral Hugh in H.E. Hugh. Uh, Admiral Hugh in China uh, built a fleet of giant treasure ships and hundreds of other ships. The treasure ships were the size of a football field, 15 times the tonnage of Columbus's ship. His total crew and his fleet would be 28,000. Ships were triple hulled and were had farm animals and farms on them to place food for the expeditions and traveled throughout the uh, uh, South Asian world. And and then a few years later, Columbus has a ship that looks like the size of a bathtub next to uh, you go on, go on Google image and put in Admiral He's ship. And some of them show the, uh, Columbus's Santa Maria, whichever one was his, next to it. And it's one-fifteenth the size of Admiral He's ships. So what happened? That China didn't, uh, that didn't continue to develop, and the West did. And why, um, what was the difference between the English and the French in the development through their revolutions and their enlightenments, etc. So he goes into that in considerable detail. I won't say anything else about that because I haven't finished it yet. Then Empire, how Britain made the modern world. Uh, and then the square and the tower, networks and power. 
from the Freemasons to Facebook. What's well, something I'm interested in? Uh, I think our world today is one of networks. How are things intertwined, interlaced? And, you know, like the world is made up of computational fractal networks. Each entity is computational. We're computational, our brain, our DNA. And then we're networked with other people in different ways, whether it's biologically from birth or in our associations or more recently in our uh, network of Facebook and Twitter friends. Oh, another thing we could have a call in. How many people find Facebook useful and how many people find Twitter useful? Anyway, get back to that in a sec. But those are three books by uh, Nail Ferguson that I'll talk about eventually because I'm just starting them. Another one I just downloaded, Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. And, you know, he sort of starts with River Rouge and works backwards and forwards. So River Rouge was a multi-mile long factory that Henry Ford built and coal, cotton, and iron ore would go in one end and order, and rubber, and automobiles would come out the other end. Uh, so it was an integrated factory. In other words, they didn't buy the uh, tires from somebody else. They made everything uh, that got assembled in the final automobile, and uh, which is different from what Foxconn does, making Apple iPhones and um, iPads. But what is a factory? Now, I'm interested in that because I'm doing a book on this networking thing. And I think, and I've spoke about this in the past, that in the, some point in the future, uh, if you wanted to make a, um, if you wanted to make an oak tree, you would not stick a pole in the ground, nail sticks to it and glue leaves onto it. You would Put an acorn in the ground and let the oak tree make itself. Why aren't we making our cell phones that way? And I think we will be self-assembly. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a lot of computer theory in that and stuff like that. But it's a contrast to the factory of today. So I want to read uh, this book, Behemoth, the History of the Factory, and you know, get an idea of what it is today and how it's going to be different. Well... Any more books? Why don't we uh, let's see what else I got here, and then we'll wrap up in a second. Um, oh yeah, that's the, the rest of them I spoke about already. The sentient machine, the coming age of artificial intelligence. I'll get back to that, um, and then a oh, big deal we got to talk about is Jordan B. Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life. An Antidote to Chaos. Well, it's a monster global bestseller. And just to show you uh, the politics of this, the New York Times refuses. It's number one or two bestseller on Amazon. But New York Times won't put it on their bestseller list because they say, well, it's it's not published in the U.S. It's a Canadian book. Like, God forbid you should buy a book printed in Canada, although apparently it's printed here. 
So there's been some controversy about that. But anyway, I'm going to try to have Peterson on the program. He's sort of the hottest commodity in the world right now. So there's. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if we can get him. But let's wrap it up. So thank you for joining us. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. on prn.fm. And we'll see you again or hear you again next Monday.